The 2024 presidential election is now less than a year away. In the lead-up, WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times are breaking down ways to strengthen democracy as part of our series, The Democracy Solutions Project. It's a partnership between Chicago Public Media and the University of Chicago's Center for Effective Government and the Harris School of Public Policy. Many experts say better civic engagement would make for a stronger union in the U.S. But beyond the basics like voting or volunteering, what might that look like? Here to discuss is the director of UChicago Center for Effective Government, Will Howell. He's the Sidney Stein Professor in American Politics at the Harris School of Public Policy. Welcome, Will. Oh, it's so good to be with you. And also with us is Kathy Cohen, Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Kathy, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. So some might say that civic engagement is about community service, social change, political involvement, or collective action. How would you define it, and what would you include, Will? Oh, that's such a big question, and it's a good one to lead with. How do we think about how we make a meaningful impact on our politics um, and the direction of our our communities and our country? Um, there are lots and lots of points of entry. Um, I think it's worth uh, before exploring those many points of entry, I think it's worth taking a step back and and saying that what we our, our, our common metrics have to do with just whether or not you vote, whether or not you show up and you cast a ballot. Um, and it turns out that we vote less frequently in this country than they do in many other countries, and that's uh, a regular lament. Um, um, and 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 there are reasons to lament that, but. I think it's from the top worth saying it's an, a rather impoverished notion about what it means to be meaningfully engaged in our politics. Um, voting matters. It decidedly matters. Elections matter. Um, but the idea that we can encapsulate the be-all and end-all of one's political self and how one can make a meaningful difference in the in in and again in our in our, in our communities and in our country just by by the the ballots that we cast. Uh, is to miss the, the the rich panoply of 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 ways that through volunteering, through engaging in social movements, through um, uh, joining up in community groups, um, you can you can shape the direction of our politics. Kathy, well, I, I would have to agree with Will on this one, and I think even the way in which you kind of stated the uh, original question is correct. It is a kind of broad, expansive understanding of political engagement that we want to put forward, right? We want to think about the ways in which people can engage at the national level, which, of course, as Will said, is primarily we think of as voting, but I might argue the kind of move into the streets that we saw in 2020 um, around the murder of George Floyd is another example of people trying to kind of shape not only the policies but the discourse at a national level and in some cases we're more effective in shaping discourse than we are in policy but it is meaningful there's also of course the work that folks want to do at the local level whether it is ensuring that there's a, a stop sign on their um on their block or speed bumps or whether it is fighting against school closure in a you know, city like Chicago, we see people kind of joining together collectively all the time. Now, I also want to say that, you know, we think of civic engagement often as an event. People did this thing and it resulted in a win. But I think it's more continuous than that, right? Especially in, I would argue, marginalized communities where folks are organizing and talking and working together collectively continuously uh, out of need, then that that is a kind of ongoing civic engagement built on 
a significant and important civic infrastructure. So there are kind of many levels in which you want to be thinking about engagement and change, um, and that happens in terms of policy and institutions and discourse, and all of that is fair game for me when I'm thinking about civic engagement. Well, do you think that we need to expand the idea of what constitutes civic engagement? Decidedly. Um, and I think that's very much in the spirit of, of, of Kathy's comments and, 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 and what I was trying to allude to earlier. I'll, I'll say a piece, when we think about what civic engagement looks like, as Kathy um, noted, we should pay attention to the actions that people take. But the way I would, I would put it is we also should pay critical attention to the networks of relationships and connections that are formed in community. Now, we want to eventually leverage those networks in order to do things, but the le- but the networks matter in their own in their own right. At the University of Chicago, I run something called the Civic Leadership Academy, where we bring together um, each year 15 people from the nonprofit and 15 people from the government sector, and we work with them over six months, and we talk a lot about what civic change might look like, how do we affect uh, goings on within our city, um, and I'll say. I, to my mind, one of the most valuable things that we do in trying to make a difference is in building out and strengthening a network of people who are working in civic spaces and have different forms of power and are in relationship with different communities and trying to stitch them together to build one more effective uh, uh, and, and and more responsive um, um, city. So, um, yes, what it, what it, what are the things that we do? But also, what are the networks that are formed? What are the relationships that are sustained? Or those those we need to hold up when we think about civic change. Do we also need to create an issue of what civic engagement is not? Um, yeah, Kathy, what do you want to rule out here? Like, are there? Yeah, we, we want to expand it. <laughs> okay. but, but like, is there anything we want to say? No, not that. That doesn't count. Well, the question is for me, like, why? What, what's the investment in ruling things out? I, I mean, I guess we can say, well, we want to understand what is truly, you know, the, in political science and will gnosis, there was a distinction often between kind of the civic meaning, a local, less politicized engagement, and then the political. And I think over time, we understand that those two are deeply connected, that things that seem apolitical are often motivated through experience and political domains and things that seem political uh, are facilitated also because of the connections and networks that people have um, with each other. And so I, I'm, I'm less invested in that kind of demarcation between this is civic and this is political, or even the idea that here's the, here's a group of activities that we will constitute as civic engagement, and there are a bunch of other things that are not civic engagement. I'm, I'm fine to engage in that conversation when it comes up and it's important, but at this moment I want to say, okay, let's, let's talk about everything. Let's put everything on the table if we're concerned about kind of questions of democracy. But, Will, I don't know what you're thinking. Well, he, here's something I want to be critical about, um, and I think, Kathy, you're likely to be on board with this, but let's see. Um, they're, they're the actions and the relationships that are formed. There also is the knowledge that people have. So we in our home discipline, we're both political scientists, um, think a lot about what does it mean to be politically sophisticated? 
um, and who is politically knowledgeable. And there's a cottage industry going back decades of folk who, who, who revel in the lack of sophistication, the fact, the, the, the notion that people's views are best characterized as having non-attitudes about politics. Um, and so, for instance, there was a, just last week, Pew put out a, a survey in, in which they asked people, you know, what is the length of a full Senate term? Um, and what do you know, roughly three in five Americans don't know that people in the Senate serve for six terms. And this is seen as a, a, a reason for sort of lamenting the state of our politics and, and, and hand-wringing about the capacity of people to self-govern um, and, 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 and be meaningfully involved in our democracy. And I did want to push back on that for a whole host of reasons. This is just adjacent to concerns about what civic engagement looks like. It's about what does is, what is civic knowledge or political knowledge look like? And this kind of knowledge, um, knowing facts about a political regime, to my mind, uh, uh, it doesn't just um, uh, mischaracterize um, what people know. It mischaracterizes what people need to know in order to me be meaningfully engaged. Just because you know that it's, look, it's six terms in the House, that people in the, in the Supreme Court are appointed for, for life, these kinds of facts, doesn't mean that you're politically sophisticated. And just because you don't answer these kinds of questions correctly, which are the bread and butter of folks who want to kind of take the pulse of, of American to figure out how are we doing and do we need more civics in our, in our schools, um, is the kind of thing that they point towards. That's and really, I just, just that's really helpful to, for you to hear because I think we can get caught up in how many Supreme Court justices, what is the governor, like all of the, in. it's important to know the branches of government, but that is a very, uh, I don't know, capital C, capital E civic engagement way to, to look at it. Because um, I also think about people who might not consider themselves engaged in civics but you know they run the phone tree for their block club they are going to caps meetings every month um you know very hyper local activities within their community natalie can i jump in in yes, four minutes please I, I, to this point uh, that you're both making um i want to say that when will says there's a cottage industry in political science about kind of what you know what are the forms of political knowledge that people have and what they don't have it's it's not just that it exists it's that it's kind of often portrayed as a deficiency in terms of racially marginalized communities so you know uh, study after study suggests in fact that whites have more political knowledge than african americans or latinx um, and we see the kind of regression runs to quote unquote prove this so one of the things that we did in our shop in our lab is to say, okay, well, what happens if we think about different forms of political knowledge? And we did a test that said, okay, well, let's see if who knows more about what might be considered kind of liberal political knowledge, the things that, you know, how many Supreme Court justices are there are. But if we also think about the state or the government as being engaged, for example, in carceral activities, we also want to know who knows more about kind of carcerality as a form of political knowledge. And not surprisingly, when we ask kind of questions about have you heard of the killing of Mike Brown or have you heard of um, other forms of police violence, right, or carcerality, that young African Americans were more likely to have that level of political knowledge. So part of what we have to do is push back on this idea that there's one necessary form of political knowledge. We have to understand the ways in which people seek knowledge 
based on their positionality and the kind of uh, realms of the state that they're dealing with. So the hyper-policing in black communities, it's not surprising that they would have more knowledge of carcerality, right? And it, it just means that, in fact, we have to, again, have an expansive understanding of where knowledge comes from, what knowledge is useful in certain situations, and then, as you said, how people are using knowledge in ways that don't always kind of rise to where we think of as, oh, that's a civic act, to kind of build infrastructure in their community, provide safety for um, the people in their community, and advance an agenda that they think, in fact, will better their community. Kathy, to that point, you have a piece out called Reconceptualizing Political Knowledge, Race, Ethnicity, and Carceral Violence. Um, Can you talk about some more of your findings and what you have in that piece? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we found is that in that young, you know, as I said, young black people in particular knew more about police killings and and could identify. One of the things we asked in the, in the study is we gave them a list of names of people who had been killed by the police or or vigilantes, and then we kind of had a list of descriptions, and we asked people to match the names with the descriptions, and as maybe we we would expect that, in fact, young African-Americans and young Latinx people had a a much higher rate of connecting the descriptor with the individual. The other thing that we found is that when we take gender uh, into consideration, uh, those instances of police or state violence against women, black women, often had less recognition than those instances of police or state violence against black men. And, And the last thing I'll just say is that we know, we learned that, in fact, and this is not surprising, that young people who are online, often talking to members of their own racial community online, were, in this case for young black people, were much more likely, right, to have experienced um, videos of police brutality and carcerality that led to a higher understanding or a higher knowledge of carcerality. Back now with more Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. Let's continue our conversation about how to improve civic engagement. Our guests are Will Howell and Kathy Cohen, both political science professors at the University of Chicago. Before the break, Kathy was talking to us about political knowledge, and particularly in African-American communities um, and the carceral state. Will, I want your thoughts on this as well. When there is a presumption that white people are more politically knowledgeable compared to black and brown people. What are the consequences? Um, Well, there's a presumption, but it's based on uh, the kinds of questions that are regularly put that are of the form. Again, I've got this Pew survey in front of me that's asking people, well, who controls the House? Do you know who controls the House? Do you know who controls the Senate? Do you know what it, um, what the filibuster is or the, or, 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 or um, what, uh, what determines the number of House of Representatives a state gets? There, when you do these kinds of surveys, you regularly observe racial differences. You observe differences in terms of age. That's all true. Um, and and then on average, you see markedly low levels of correct responses. And the question is, what do we do with that? Uh, with 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 that? I mean, what um, what what Kathy is encouraging us to do is to say these aren't obviously the right questions to be asking when you're trying to assess how politically sophisticated people are and that where one sits 
where one's position is vis-a-vis the state can inform not just generically how politically sophisticated you are, but what kinds of knowledge you get and what kinds of knowledge you need, which is decidedly true. Um, and, and, and if you think about what kind of knowledge is actionable, what, that you could actually put in the service of making a difference, it isn't clear that these are the kinds of questions you would, you would want to know. You'd want to know things about, like, how do I nav- uh, navigate the um, housing administration here in, in Chicago? Um, how, 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 would I, how would I get that stop sign? Um, how, what, what would it mean to engage the parks district in order to change um, how a particular plot of land is, is zoned and, and what purposes it can be put to? And that, that requires a very different kinds of knowledge, which have nothing to do with, you know, is, is the House run by the Republicans or Democrats this year? Uh, one more thing if I could throw out is that in addition, there is, this is a, a more, sort of a more generic kind of response, but there's an awful lot of research on it. Um, in in Kathy Meyer, our, our home discipline, there's just a lot of evidence that people can figure out how to navigate politics, even in the face of a lot of uncertainty, that through their networks, through party ID as a kind of a heuristic to figure out wh- how I should vote, um, through through endorsements, through communities, that even in the face of a lack of kind of base level knowledge, the kind of th- knowledge that would be recorded when I get called on a survey, I nonetheless can do a reasonably job, a reasonably good job of of navigating the the, the, the thicket of American politics. Kathy, you're the creator of the Gen Ford survey, which is the first of its kind nationally representative survey of young adults ages 18 to 36. Um, how would you describe civic engagement among those folks, and how does it compare to the engagement of adults? Well, you know, I always say that we want to think about not just civic engagement, but civic opportunity, right? Where are we providing young people with the opportunity to engage in uh, a meaningful politics um, that will impact their lives? So I'm going to—I promise I'm going to answer your question. The easy answer to the question is, for example, if we take voting over the last two midterm uh, elections, we've seen a a significant uptake in terms of young people going to the polls. If we go back to 2020 and before, if another marker of civic mobilization about social movements and the support of social movements, so not everyone was in the streets, but there was kind of deep support for social movement activity, we know that there has been an increase. When When others look at other forms of engagement, meaning did you sign a petition? Did you talk to people? Did you donate? Those are not things that people do in significant numbers, but the numbers seem to be kind of creeping up. So we can say that there's been an increase uh, in civic engagement among young people. Now, part of that question, though, is about kind of the question of, I would argue, threat. Um, That when you say, in fact, democracy is on the ballot, that is something that hits home for young people who will have to live with um, a lack of resources, school closings, um, police brutality or police harassment, right? These are not just kind of abstract principles, but, but things that, in fact, live in the lives of young people and therefore can mobilize them or actually, excuse me, can help them be mobilized. And what I mean by that is 
we know, again, from uh, research in political science and other places, that the ways in which people engage are usually that they're invited to engage. It's not that, in fact, we see there's a need in our community and we go out and start doing it ourselves. It's usually there's an organization that's there that knocks on your door or calls you on the phone or sends you a text and says, hey, I want to hear what you're, what you're concerned about and I want to help, help you kind of mobilize around those agendas. So I want to say that in civic engagement, there is a possibility. But I, I want to put one more thing on the table and then you can go back to Will, which is what I worry about in terms of young people is that most of their socialization around civic engagement, at least kind of formal education, happens in environments, even in civic classes, that are not kind of thinking about civic or political engagement expansively. We also are asking young people to think about being democratic citizens as they progress through institutions, meaning schools, that are largely undemocratic and often autocratic, right? So there is a contradiction in terms of the socialization process that leads to a politic or a civic engagement and young people's ability to find alternative institutions that really do provide them with opportunities to engage in civics and politics. So even though you all are both university professors, if you can indulge me on this, Will, you just rattled off a list of few questions for civic engagement. Kathy, you're talking about they're not really being democratic places for young people. So if you all were in charge of Chicago Public Schools civic engagement curriculum, for example, um, what would that look like to reduce some of those barriers and to get young people involved in this system? Will, I'll start with you. Um, my first move actually would probably have less to do with trying to teach individual kids one by one. Here are the civic lessons you need to have. I, and that's, that's instinctively when we see evidence of a depleted civic environment, the, there's this kind of move to resuscitate and rebuild people, um, what they know, make them more robust creatures. Um, there's, to my mind, um, our attention would be well served instead to open up space that people can enter into and to create robust opportunity and even some um, responsibility associated with that. So, for instance, um, some countries... Uh, Australia, for instance, you're required to vote. There's a civic duty to vote. And then there's a lot of effort to make sure that it's reasonably easy for people to vote. That that obligation, um, a bunch of scholarship has shown, has massively increases the, the level of turnout um, seen there relative to what we see in our country. And it won't do to just kind of lean on folk and to say, uh, boy, you have a duty, you have an obligation. If you are a good small d democratic person, you will see your your your, your duty to vote. Um, you, you, you can create space and structure and in some instances even obligations that that can have a radical impact on downstream behavior. And and those are also happily things that we can actually make decisions about. We can actually enter into and 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 move those needles in ways it's hard to move the needles that are of the form of changing hearts and minds one at a time. Kathy, what about you? So I'm going to go right to schools in particular. And um, 
and say that, in fact, I think we have to reconceptualize what we mean by civic, and I dare say civic and political engagement. Uh, a colleague of mine, Matthew Nelson, has just published a new book called The Color of Civics. And part of his argument is to say that when we look at classrooms where there is a civic-oriented course, right, that takes the knowledge that young people have because they interact with the state all the time in their neighborhoods and make that central to how we think about teaching civics, then there's a whole different level of engagement. And if we layer onto that an analysis of schools to say where are the democratic opportunities for young people to be involved and share power in schools, and I know for some people that they'll be like, what? why do we care about that? They just need to learn math and English, sure, but we're also producing, uh, I will say, democratically engaged individuals through schooling, and we have school systems that shut that down. So I think I would start with schools. Then I would also invest in the civic infrastructure that exists in the city that are specifically focused on mobilizing young people, whether it is Chicago Votes or um, BYP 100 or Asada's Daughters or Good Kids Mad City, right, or Brave Space Alliance. We can go down the list. I mean, Chicago is this amazing place of alternative organization, no, I should say, alternative forms of civic infrastructure where there are organizations that are truly interested and empowered and supporting the work of young people. So I, I think we have the ability to kind of really rectify and to begin to kind of pivot and provide a model for how a city thinks about engaging and empowering young people from schools to outside of schools to ensuring, in fact, that their voices and their agenda is moved forward with, with a kind of seriousness that most places just don't. So you all have me rethinking. Do eighth graders need to take the constitutional test to oh graduate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really something, right? I mean, maybe, maybe we're made better for that. Right. And, but both of our, I remember both of my kids studying for that thing um, and feeling miserable doing so. And then promptly uh, forgetting 80% of what they learned once they got past the test, this kind of knowledge at arm's length that is, um, that is meant to kind of be a, a screen for who gets to call themselves politically sophisticated and who not isn't altogether helpful. There are all kinds of knowledge and opportunities for sustained engagement that are much more local that will both excite them and, and just think about what kind of class you want to be in, right? Like, we could go on and on, but we have to wrap up this segment. We've been talking with Kathy Cohen, professor of political science at the University of Chicago and creator of the Jen Ford Survey, and Will Howe, director of UChicago Center for Effective Government and the Sidney Stein Professor in American Politics at the Harris School of Public Policy. Thank you all so much. Thank you.